couple people when they asked if they could join in uh, for week two. I always say to people, it's okay because the instructions are really simple and they're just repeated over and over again. In a way, there's only one instruction in meditation practice, at least this style. You know, can we be aware of whatever it is that's arising in the moment? You know, so if somebody says, well, this happened, or I was feeling this kind of pain, or I was seeing bright lights, or I was so restless, I was so sleepy. The real question always is, well, can we be aware of it? Is it possible for the heart to open, to see clearly that this present moment reality is this way? You know, it's like this now. The experience is like this. And last week I talked about that we're balancing two qualities. We're developing and balancing two qualities. And in a sense, we can't have a, too much, as long as they're in balance, of these qualities. So we're looking for a deeper and deeper relaxation. The heart, the mind, the body, being more relaxed with the experiences that are coming and going. And we're cultivating an alertness and interest. And it sounds contradictory to be both alert and relaxed. But that's because we have a relatively superficial understanding of what alertness is and what relaxation is. We associate relaxation with going unconscious and falling asleep. And we associate alertness with being really excited, you know, like having a lot of greed. We're, when we have a lot of greed, we're often very alert. Or when we have a lot of fear, we're often very alert. But can we be really alert, really bright, interested, without mental and physical tension? The body and mind relaxed. And that's a lot of the practice. The more we can bring this balance of alertness and relaxation first, you know, in our training, to simple phenomena like breathing in, breathing out, being really alert and relaxed with that breathing in, breathing out, or just generally the sensations of the body as we're sitting. Or some of you might be working with sound as your primary anchor for your attention. So those are the three anchors that I suggested. There are many others, but <clears throat> don't make it too complicated. Just shop around a little and then choose one of these, either working with sounds, working with predominant sensations of the body. So you're just feeling the body sitting. And if there are some very predominant sensations in that moment, then that can be your anchor. Otherwise, the body sitting, the sensations of the body sitting, that whole body feeling, sitting up, that's your anchor. Or the third choice is the sensations of breathing. So feeling the breath at the nostrils, that simple touching, right? The air is touching that skin just outside and inside of the nostrils so just noticing that touching noticing that touching or some people feel the breath down in the belly so we're using an ordinary experience like the breath like the body sensation like hearing to practice that brightness that alertness that interest and then that other quality to practice that relaxation that trust that allowingness, we're allowing the breath, allowing the sensations of the body, allowing the sounds that are coming and going in the moment to be the way that they are. 
we're not feeling as if we think things should be other than they are, need to be other than they are. It's a radical acceptance. That's really where the relaxation comes from. We don't need things to be other than they are. So the mind, the heart is relaxed. It makes sense, doesn't it, that if we really have faith that this balance of alertness and relaxation allows us to be more skillful in life, being more skillful, naturally avoiding what leads to suffering, what leads to stress, naturally moving in the direction of what leads to happiness and peace. So if we're interested in that, then it makes sense that we'd want to train where it's relatively simple. You know, going to a quiet room with like-minded people, taking up something that's relatively simple like breathing, hearing, feeling the body sitting, and practicing being alert and relaxed. And not just alert and relaxed in one moment. The real hard part, actually, in the practice is the continuity. You know, I, with you know my little pep talk, I can inspire everybody to be mindful in one moment. You know, to be relatively alert, relatively relaxed with the body, with the breath, with sound, or with whatever you're paying attention to for a moment. But to be able to do that continuously for some period of time, that takes a real rewiring of the mind. Because our mind, you know, is in the habit of being distracted. Touching here, looking there, reacting to this, imagining that, fantasizing, comparing, judging. So it's just bouncing around, often driven by greed and aversion and distraction, you know, like, well, nothing's important, so I'm going to dismiss the experience. So the continuity of awareness takes a lot of patience to develop that. It's like an unbrokenness in the attention stream. So the attention is alert, it's relaxed, and it's unbroken. And in a way, that's all you have to remember initially in practice are those three things. You know, those two qualities of mind and then the continuity of them. Alertness, relaxation, and continuity of this balance. And you know, and this is important to remember, although we're training with a particular anchor, some of you with your breath maybe at the nostrils, some of you hearing, some of you feeling the body sitting. But of course, I'm sure you've noticed if you've been doing your practice daily, the mind wanders, you know, because it's a big habit of the mind to go where it thinks it wants to go. So then we can maintain that continuity. You don't have to... I mean, ideally, it's nice to have some continuity with the primary anchor. But even when the mind wanders, because sometimes, even though you have the intention to be with the breath, the mind's going to think about Wednesday, or remember Saturday, or wonder why that person keeps moving, or wondering if anybody notices I'm moving. So the mind will think a thought, or react to some pain, or react to the temperature of the room. But then that can just be the next moment of that balance, like being really alert and really relaxed with the distraction. That's the real art of practice. So when we, in a sense, awaken, come back to the present moment, back to the experience, now the mind is distracted, it's caught up in some thought stream. Now, I could immediately react to that by judging myself, 
or being embarrassed or rushing back to my anchor, but instead take that moment to be alert and relaxed with the mind that's distracted. Because then it's not distracted, is it? Then it's a moment of mindfulness with judging or a moment of mindfulness with hating the pain in the knee. So there's the pain in the knee and maybe there's an emotional reaction. I don't like this pain in my knee. And there's also mindfulness, clear, bright, non-judging, relaxed mindfulness that understands, oh, the mind is hating the pain in the knee. And it's like this. And this is all being known here and now. See, that's a different reality than being the one who hates the pain in the knee. Instead, in a sense, this, you know, language isn't perfect here, but in a sense, we're the one that knows there's anger and it's like this, or there's, there's ill will, you know, hatred of the pain in the knee, and it's like this. That's different than being the one caught up, identified with, bound up in that, I hate this pain, I don't want it, I needs to go away, it's not going away, it isn't fair. Being identified with it means there's going to be endless proliferation. The mind will spin around it. But if there's a moment of mindfulness, then the proliferation, in a sense, loses its uh, fuel. There's nothing feeding the proliferation about hating the pain in the knee. When there's an awareness, the mind, you know, that you know, we're really the mind is seen, the awareness rather is seen. Oh, this is hatred. This is not liking, and it's like this. It's just the experience of the mind not liking. You see how objectifying or reducing it to just a present moment mental phenomena takes all the reactive steam out of the usual reactive patterns. And I'm sure you've just stumbled upon this, you know, where you're in some fit reacting to somebody or some experience, but there's just naturally arises a moment of mindfulness and you realize, you know, you're building up a head of steam. And it really deflates it, doesn't it? It's hard to get really worked up with greed or aversion and be mindful. Try it sometime. You can't really get whipped up with greed and aversion unless the mind is deluded, meaning delusion just means not being mindful, right? It doesn't mean we're unconscious in a sense, in a strict sense, but the mind is blinded by its activity. Mindfulness means there's still mental activity, but we're not blinded by it. We're aware there's this activity, there's this movement of emotion, for example. So we can be blinded by anger, or we can be aware there's anger in the mind and it's like this. We can be blinded by lust or greed or wanting, or we can be aware there's wanting, greed, lust in the mind. And it makes all the difference. And so this is, this is what we're doing in this simple training mechanism where we put aside some time every day, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I try to do a couple hours a day. You know, so it just depends on your life, how important the practice is, you found that the practice is for you. But we put aside some time, we put aside or find a place that's relatively supportive where the conditions aren't too agitating. 
you know, we like to find a tranquil place because it makes the practice easier. We develop the skill best when we're not being tested too much. But then we take it on the road, right? Then we live the rest of our day where the conditions aren't necessarily suitable, where we have lots going on around us and a lot of it stimulating all kinds of reactivity, but we do our best. <coughs> Any questions before we stretch our legs and do our sit? And we'll have time after the sit for people to share your experiences from this sit and from any of your sits this last week, what you've been learning, what's been challenging. So you can keep that in mind. If, if some confusing thing comes up during the sit, just remember to bring it up with the whole group afterward. But any questions about the instructions I've given thus far? And I'll give some instructions during the the sit. So feel free to stretch out your legs, and including it's okay to stand for a few seconds if that feels like it will be good for you. And then whenever you're ready, find a way to sit. I'll talk a little bit more about posture later in the evening, but just do your best to have a sense of being stable in your posture. And generally what helps the stability is a wide base of support. The more stable the base, whether you're in a chair or on the floor, the easier it is for the spine to rise up out of that base. And the idea, even if you're in a chair, is to be relatively, the spine to be relatively self-supporting so you're not using a lot of muscular effort. Or if you're in a chair, you're not relying too much on the back of the chair, even though there may be some contact. And then, of course, once you have the spine, sort of one vertebra resting on the one below it, then you can imagine you're placing your head there, balanced, so you don't need a lot of muscular activity in your neck. Maybe gently, not too much, tucking the chin. Belly soft. Just scanning quickly through the body where noticing where you might tend to hold physical tension, maybe in your eyes, maybe in your jaw or on the tongue, maybe at the tops of the shoulders, maybe in the belly, some people along the floor of the pelvis. Take the time to slowly, easily fill and empty the lungs, maybe two or three times. Take as much time as you'd like to slowly fill, slowly empty the lungs. And this can be a really nice opening ritual in your meditation to take a few deep, slow breaths can see it as a way of coming home to the experience of the body. Breathing in slowly, deeply, feeling the body as it actually is now. Exhaling, accepting it as it actually is.
and after a few deep, full breaths, allow the breathing to continue on its own. So you're letting go of any need to control the breathing process. It's actually a real relief that we can trust the body to do the breathing. How nice it is not to have to control this. And I'm going to ring the bell three times. And we'll do a short hearing meditation, just receiving the sound of the bell and all the other sounds of the room, allowing the sounds to arise in the space of the mind, to be known in the space of the mind. But no need to do anything with the sounds, just hearing and letting go. Just notice a simple happiness of being in this simple environment of just sitting. A simple happiness of being present with the body sitting. There's some joy in simplicity for this period of time, for these 25 minutes or so. Our responsibilities as human beings are very simple. Our only responsibility is to cultivate a wholesome balance of mind, alertness and relaxation in the mind. That's all. So we'll begin tonight with a simple body scan. Begin by simply feeling any sensations now at the top of the head. It's as if we're feeling the top of the head for the very first time, a real natural interest, even if the sensations are relatively nondescript. Feeling the top of the head, let the awareness soak in, open up here. Feeling the back of the head as it actually is now. And then sensitive 
to the right side of the head, the right ear, feeling the left side of the head, the left ear, perhaps feeling a slight breeze, feel the forehead, and any tension below the surface any pressure, simply opening to the brow, perhaps feeling the eyelids touching the eyes if they're closed, but in any case feeling any tension, any sensation in the eyes and around the eyes. And feeling the air touching the skin of the face. And noticing any tension in the face. No need to judge and no need to control. Just letting the face be the way that it is. Feeling the sensations of the nose and the nostrils. Feeling the breath, the air moving up through the nostrils and down out of the nostrils. Maybe you can notice that the air feels cooler on the way in, feels warmer on the way out. Bringing that alert and relaxed, accepting attention to the mouth. Feel the lips, noticing if they're open or closed, dry or moist. The tongue, the teeth, the gums. Any tension in the jaw. Recognizing now that it's possible to open to all the different sensations in the face and head with alertness and relaxation. Non-judging, non-controlling, allowing the head and face to be. And bringing the same balanced attitude of mind to the neck, the throat, all the sensations here. Simple presence, the mind alert, the mind, the heart, the body relaxed, aware of the neck, aware of the throat, and then down into the tops of the shoulders, simply opening, sensitive to what's ever here. (coughs) 
And even if we're opening to what's unpleasant, see if this can be trusted. See if it's possible for the mind to relax, to accept even what's unpleasant. Feeling the shoulders and the shoulder joints just as they are. And opening to both arms, the underarms, the biceps, feeling the elbows and the forearms in the most basic way. Feel the clothes touching the skin of the arms, perhaps feeling the quality of vibration, tingling. Feeling the hands and the backs of the hands, all the fingers, all the places of contact where the arms and hands are touching. Feel the shoulders, arms and hands together. Unconditional surrender, acceptance, letting it all be. And we're going to move down through the body, down through the torso now, like a CAT scan. So we begin just below the base of the throat, feel the collarbones. We're feeling both the upper chest and the upper back together as we slowly move down through the rib cage. And simply feeling whatever we feel. Moving down into the central chest and the back of the shoulder blades, the mid spine, lungs. Feeling the structure of the rib cage as we continue to move down. Lower lungs and the diaphragm. Solar plexus and the kidneys. Lower ribs. mind is bright and alert, honest, and accepting. As we move down into the abdomen, into the lower back, little by little, simply knowing the entire torso as we move down through it, into the lower abdomen, to the back of the hips, down into the buttocks and the floor, the pelvis, the groin, pubic bone, hip sockets. Feeling the whole torso and pelvis together now. Is it possible to more fully trust the experience? 
not to have to be in denial, not to be bored, not to be afraid, but to be open and relaxed. And down both legs. So we begin with the thighs, from the hip sockets down through the thighs. Again, the most ordinary sensations, like the pants touching the skin. Feel the bend in the knees, any sensations there, the calves and the shins, socks on the skin. Aware of any sensations in the ankles, on the tops and sides of the feet. Feel the bottoms of the feet. And opening to the toes, just as they are. Now feeling the whole body sitting. Allowing the sensations to come and go. Bringing a balanced mind, alert and relaxed to the flow, the coming and going of sensation throughout the body. And you can continue being aware of the body if this is your particular anchor for your practice, whole body awareness. Otherwise, let the attention come to the breath, feeling the breath moving in the body, down in the belly perhaps, or at the nostrils, wherever it's easy to be aware of the movement of the breathing process. Or, of course, the third option is to open to hearing. So training with one particular anchor, learning how to bring this balance of alertness and relaxation to develop a continuity of attention or continuity of mindfulness with this particular anchor you're working with. And remember, don't be frustrated by distraction. Just be aware when the mind is distracted that the mind is distracted. Staying relaxed and alert, beginning again and again and again. So we'll continue in silence for a while now. <coughs>
and remember, some people find it very useful to use a meditation word to help to direct the attention back to the present moment. So for example, if you're mindful of your breathing, something as simple as in, out can be quite useful. Or if you're feeling the breath in the belly, rising, falling. But you can also use meditation words that remind the mind about this balance. So for example, with the in-breath, you can use a word that reminds the mind to be alert. For example, you could use the word opening or knowing or connecting. But the basic message is, honey, you can be alert. And then with the exhalation, you can use a word that reminds the mind to relax. Releasing is one of my favorites. Or letting things be. Or peace. So connecting with the in-breath, releasing with the out-breath. So from time to time, see how you can use specific words to support this alertness and relaxation and the continuity of mindfulness.
Now let's take the next few minutes and be particularly interested in this quality of alertness. So whether you're being aware of the breathing process or aware of the body sitting or aware of the movement of sound, experiment with developing, maintaining a beautiful quality of alertness, interest. It's a kind of truthfulness, the mind wanting to see clearly how it is now in the body and with the breath, with hearing. tightness. Continuity of an alert, clear attention. 
with the present moment. Within this continuity of alert attention, see if it's possible to relax, to trust, to not need things to be other than they are. Whatever it is we're alert or awakening to, can it be okay? Is it possible for the heart, the body to be relaxed? with whatever it is that's being known. Unconditional acceptance. So for the last minute or so, if your eyes have been closed, gently open them. You're not looking at anything in particular. Aware of the visual field as we're sitting. Aware of sounds. Aware of sensations whole body alive with sensations and aware of thought or mental activity, emotion, aware of things as they actually are now. Can this be okay, this moment as it is? Can this be okay? There's a gesture. You can use it if you like. You don't need to. It's called Anjali. You put your hands together, bring your forehead down. And uh, you see it's similar to some Christian gestures that are used in other 
places in the world. And you might feel like it, it helps uh, support a sense of gratitude. It's just being grateful for the time, being grateful for the silence, grateful for the, you know, just the inclination in the mind to do the practice. So you can just experiment. It's nice to do it when no one else is around. And you can just see if you want to, if it's helpful to use a gesture like that. At Common Ground, some people do, some people don't. It's not like an enforced gesture. So if you haven't yet, feel free to stretch out your legs. Make sure you're comfortable. And we'll take some time. It'd be nice to hear from people. As I mentioned earlier, we learn quite a bit actually hearing from people, what people are experiencing in their own practice, what's working, what's challenging. And if you do decide to speak up, please say your name. And it's nice to speak loudly enough so everybody in the room can hear you. So what have you been learning? What's been challenging? What questions do you have about the sitting practice? We'll take some time now. Yeah. Hi, I'm Brenna, um, and I struggle with falling asleep a lot. Yeah. I Yeah. Have you been practicing for a long time or pretty new? Okay. So Brenna was saying, Brenna, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brenna was saying that she falls asleep and often very quickly as soon as she starts. Why don't people raise their hands if nodding off or, or just dealing with uh, sleepiness has been an issue for other people? <laughs> so you're not alone. And in some ways, it becomes more challenging the more you practice. It may seem funny to say that, but um, I mean, initially, a lot of what we're feeling when we sit down, you know, the body and the mind, it operates in a pretty primitive way. You know, we see delicious food and we feel hungry. It doesn't matter if we're actually hungry, you know, but it's like stimulus response. We are still in a quiet space. We feel sleepy. So part of it is as simple as that that just being relatively comfortable in a quiet, lightly lighted place, you know, like a meditation hall, it's just the sort of primitive mechanism of the mind-body thinks, well, this would be a good place to fall asleep. You know, why not here? So that's part of it. Part of it, of course, is that culturally, a lot of people are sleep deprived. They're just not getting enough sleep. And part of the reason for that is that we're not sleeping enough And part of the reason uh, for that is that we're living stressful lives. So we need a lot of sleep to balance the stress in our lives. But even when all those things are taken care of, you've reduced some of the stress in your life, you're getting plenty of sleep, given how much stress there is in your life. Even then, what happens is, uh, you know, another primitive aspect of our mind is it's a junkie for pleasant experience. And is anybody not experienced going to sleep as unpleasant? No, it's pleasant to fall asleep. We like it. It's like, in a way, we get to put down the world for a while. In a way, especially deep sleep, you know, when we're not dreaming, 
in a way, it's it has the flavor of freedom, doesn't it? Like, I don't have to be a person for a while. I don't have to be a mother or a father or an employee or somebody living on a dying planet or whatever drama you know you might have for yourself. For a period of time, till we start dreaming, we're really free. And so it's pleasant. And because of that pleasantness, uh, people tend to overemphasize the tranquility part of meditation. They basically tranquilize themselves right into a trance state or right into unconsciousness, into sleep. Because it's pleasant. You know, and it's like one spoon of Haagen-Dazs ice cream is great. Two spoons is better. Three spoons is even better. You know, and it's like that with tranquility. Well, tranquilizing myself a little bit feels good. Well, why don't I tranquilize myself more? Well, that feels good. And then we basically tranquilize the mind into oblivion. This happens a lot. And this is not that different than people who absorb into any number of activities. You know, somebody does a little knitting and they get a little relief. You know, they, they get a little distance from the worries and the this and the that's. And they knit a little bit more. And pretty soon, it's like without their knitting, they can't travel. Like if I don't have my knitting and I'm on a plane or, or whatever it is, your novel. Nowadays, of course, it's like being hooked up to the Internet and sort of ceaselessly, endlessly surfing, looking for something interesting online. But we all have those places where we, uh, we absorb into it. And, and in a way, we try to go to zero. Like, I, I so absorb into this activity that I don't have to be a human being anymore. It's just a different aspect of disappearing. So in a way, tranquility if we're not careful, if it's not in balance, tranquility ends up being uh, taken over by this aversive relationship to life. Life is hard. Being awake, being present, being engaged is challenging. I, my buttons get pushed and never turns out the way exactly the way I would like it to turn out. So we start getting attracted. Oh, God, I can just, I don't need drugs anymore. You know, I can just make myself go to some place. And people do this. They, they develop the capacity in their meditation to go someplace fluffy, soft and fluffy. And then they'll do that every time when they sit, and then it becomes a habit, whether it's actually going to sleep or generally that shows, I mean, you kind of catch that, you know, and you realize something's off, like, oh, this practice, it isn't about going to sleep, so I must be doing something wrong. But the trance states are harder to detect because it feels good. And it feels like we've had a vacation when we're done sitting in that way, but we haven't learned anything. That's, that's why we want to be really careful about this tendency. So the basic solution, once you, you know, changed your life, so you're getting enough sleep and managing your stress better, and then when you're finding that the mind wants to nod off or go into some soft, fluffy place, then you know, oh, it's not the tranquility that's the problem. It's not like you can have too much tranquility. It's, there's just not enough energy. There's not enough brightness. So we need to emphasize the alertness. That, like I said, it's okay in the beginning to emphasize some tranquility over the alertness. But basically, we have to develop both of these qualities in tandem because they keep the mind balanced. If all we had was alertness, we'd get really restless and really judgmental and really reactive. You know, 
hypervigilance without any sense of inner peace or tranquility, it's like really hard to be around those people, <laughs> including ourselves when we're that way. So we need the relaxation and tranquility to ba- balance the brightness, the alertness, just like we need the alertness to balance the tranquility. We need the energy of alertness to balance the tranquility. And one thing you'll notice for those, especially who've been practicing for a while, is you'll get in this nice balanced place. The mind's alert, it's connecting, it's sustaining, that has that continuity with the present moment, whatever the object might be, and it's tranquil. It's just letting things be. So it's seeing but letting things be, seeing but letting things be. And then all of a sudden, the mind loses its connection with the present moment. And it's like the whole thing can implode in a minute. And you can go to sleep. And you'll see that. People look so bright and serene. And and then all of a sudden... And the thing is, it's like when the mind loses its connection with the present moment, it tends to go unconscious. Because it's the interest, it's the actual uh, vivid connection with things as they are that's enlightening. It really energizes the mind. Just like, you know, if you were investigating something new, like, you know, I snap my fingers and you end up on Mars with the proper spacesuit, and, you know, you'd be really alert because it's new. Well, the present moment is like that. I know it sounds a little like a cliche, you know, the present moment is always new and bright, and but it's true. The present moment has, isn't actually known by the mind. It seems like we know it because we're not actually aware of the present moment. We're aware of our thoughts about the present moment. And our thoughts are very stale. Our ideas are stale. We've had these ideas or some version of these ideas over and over and over again. But the actual present moment has the quality of being really interesting. That's a, that's a way you know you really are connected with the present moment is everything comes alive. And it doesn't matter if you come into the present moment through the breath or through feeling the body or through hearing or through seeing or through any of the sense gates. It's really enlivening to be connecting with the present moment. But when you lose it, you have all that tranquility, but nothing sort of to support it, no energy to support it. Because the energy was coming from being connected to the present moment. Now the mind is not connected. It's lost in thought. And the whole system implodes. And you can either go to some trance state or you fall asleep. So, how to bring more energy into the mind? Well, one useful technique, and you heard me mention it during the guided sit, is if you ask your mind to actually name what's predominant, what's happening from time to time, just having to, uh, like just that simple request, mind, honey, see clearly what's predominant and name it. You know, that makes the mind work, doesn't it? The mind has to connect and it has to recognize and it has to label it. Even if we're labeling it this, you know, so some nondescript label, but this, it sort of energizes the mind, judging. Just judging being known. You know, breathing in, breathing out. Those the mental noting, when it's really connected, so it's not, because mental noting can be like a mantra, you know, where we're, we don't even know what we're saying. It's like a lulling the mind to sleep. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing. And we're not really connected to the present moment reality of breathing in and breathing out. It's 
like we're just singing a lullaby to the mind. It's going to go right to bed. But if we're actually using the mental noting or the labeling, or like I called it, a meditation word from time to time, to energize the mind, it can be very useful. So you can experiment with that. Or just without labeling or noting, just asking the mind to see more of whatever the mind is attending to in that moment. So if you're feeling some emotion, like well, being interested, like where exactly is this emotion being felt? Where is it strongest? Does it have a center? Is it shifting or is it static? You know, Is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? So investigation energizes the mind. Yeah, so those are two ways to sort of work with it. Uh, asking the mind to note it and asking the mind to do more, to see more, to see more details in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Bring it up again. This is a common, I mean, it's like in these, these intro classes, we always need to talk about restlessness and sleepiness because they're just classic obstacles to developing the practice. For both beginners and people who've been practicing for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes in superficial ways, people think thinking is bad. In terms of meditation, thinking is bad. That's too superficial. There will be, there is a place for thinking. So let's just call it right thinking. (laughs) Right thinking is the kind of thinking that directs the attention to the present moment. Everything else is, in in the context of meditation practice, is wrong thinking. It's not useful. It's counterproductive. So a thought like if I, if I use the thought, oh, that's judging. Judging is being known. That could be right thinking because it's orienting the attention to the present moment phenomena of this emotion of judging or this mind state, this mental process of judging. So it's supporting that balance, that alert, relaxed presence with this mental phenomena. Or, you know, breathing in, breathing out. Or, or just like, uh, oh, you know, that's the past. I don't need to think about the past now. You know, honey, not now. We can think about the past later. <coughs> Let's come back to the present. Like even something more substantial, some thinking more substantial like that, that can be quite useful. But thinking, why do I always go to the past? Why am I always thinking about the past? Why is this so interesting? That can look like we're practicing. But that's not helpful because we're in that sort of discursive relationship where we're thinking about ourselves as a, as a meditation practitioner. But we're not practicing anymore. We're thinking about practicing, but it's different. So thoughts that support the mind coming back to the present, connecting and sustaining with the present moment, those are useful thoughts. And we can use them appropriately. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so your name? Um, my name is Phil. Well, um, you know, I understand there's a medical condition where people hear that buzzing or background hum in the mind, but what actually is the problem with it? 
You know, there's always going to be phenomena that we're aware of. The thing about some of these issues, whether it's pain, you know, like a chronic pain or discomfort, not maybe not as strong as pain, or uh, sound, a background sound, like it could have been, you know, jackhammer next door, or as opposed to a sound in the ear or whatever. But what's really interesting is what's the mind's relationship to that phenomenon? So there's the sound and then the mind's relationship. And which of them are, is more toxic? Probably the mind's relationship. So in terms of this practice, although these objects won't necessarily support a lot of tranquility, they will support alertness. Like to get very interested in the mind not liking that sound. If that's in fact the relationship the mind has with that sound. Oh, so that's actually the object in the present moment, not the sound, which is of course happening in the present moment. But more interesting and more relevant for mindfulness purposes is the mind not liking the sound. That's also a present moment phenomenon. You know, so if the mind doesn't like it, that's got to be happening in the present moment, that not liking. And if it's happening, it can be known. Anything that's happening can be known, right? Is there anything that's happening that can't be known? It can be known. So then we put our attention on that. Non-judging, right? So that we need the relaxation, like we're trusting the not liking of that sound to be here. And instead of looking at it in order to make it go away, we're looking at it in order to understand it. We want to understand the mind that doesn't like the sound. We want to understand it as a natural, present moment phenomenon. It's understanding the not liking that changes things. It's not understanding the not liking that makes things stay the same. And we live our life having a physical ailment like getting old, you know, just guaranteed. We're going to have all kinds of physical ailments. And if on top of that aging process, we're going to end up practicing hating every single one of them, well, no wonder we're frightened of the aging process. But it isn't actually the aging process that's so debilitating. It's the mind's habit to hate what's unpleasant or what it fears or what it, it doesn't understand. And I'll just say one... I forgot your name. Phil? No. Yeah. Phil, just say one thing, Phil, that uh, there's a very well-known meditation technique listening to that background buzz, you know, and it becomes an object of great devotion for meditators who take it up as their meditation object. So, I've, I've used that background sound quite a bit. Now, I know that, I mean, I don't know enough medically. I mean, you know, it makes sense that uh, for some people, you know, it's a real problem. It, it has become a real problem. But it's never been a problem for me. And it always sort of, because it, it always reminds, the nice thing about that background sound is, it's like, we're not, uh, it's, it's like, has a constancy to it, right? And so, one of the interesting things about learning to pay attention to things that are very ordinary is it, uh, it evokes, it can evoke a very deep equanimity. Opening to neutral experience is hard for the mind. The mind likes to dismiss ordinary experiences. I mean, when's the last time you actually felt your shirt against your back? It's an ordinary experience. 
we tend to be oblivious. But we, when we learn to be very alert, interested, and continuous with ordinary experiences, we'll naturally see or realize a kind of equanimity, because that's what it evokes. And it, it's teaching the mind how to relate with equanimity. Now, right now, it's not you're not going to have an equanimous relationship with that, because the mind has gotten in the habit of not liking it or fearing it for some reason, probably. But you can transform that, or with some other ordinary experience. And that's often why, in training, we use ordinary experience, like the breath, like sitting, like hearing, You know, especially when you're in a relatively quiet place. They tend to put you to sleep until you learn how to get interested in them. So that's why sleeping, that's why two-thirds of the room raised their hand when we were talking about sleepiness. Other thoughts? Yeah, Eric. I have a question about something that you just said, and that is the concept of um, being aware of a thought but not making it go away. Because I've, always, I've noticed, I've tried to cultivate the, the ability to observe thoughts as they arise and fall, but every time I observe a thought, it immediately disappears. Yeah. So I think, and the same with emotions. And so it's easy for me to cultivate that tranquility, but there's something that I'm missing with the mindfulness part of it, I'm sure. And what, what makes you conclude that you're missing something? Because it disappears well, immediately? Because the things that, that distract the mind seem to be completely meaningless things that, that just arise for no apparent reason, whereas the actual emotions that I'm feeling or the important thoughts that I have seem to disappear as soon as I... Uh, yeah. So that's, it's all very interesting what, what you've said and very relevant to the development of the practice. Could be two things. Sometimes, often in the beginning, especially, when we were sitting, we're with the breath, and then we notice thinking's going on, and the attention, in a sense, you know, it's not actually like this, because let me just make this point first. Experience is always happening where? It's always happening here in the mind, right? So even though the truck drives by over there, hearing happens here. Even though I might be thinking about the past, the thought about the past is here, anticipating the future out there, but it's happening here. So whatever the physical experience of seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, or the mental experience of thinking, it's always happening here in the mind. Always here, right? So that's important, that's important to understand. So knowing the mind recognizes these six things, thinking and the five physical senses, the mind has its capacity to know what the mind is sensitive to in this moment. And all of that is always happening, we could say, here in the space of the mind. In fact, even though theoretically maybe there is this reality, you know, that we call, you know, our material reality, like there's an over there, over there, and there's a you over there, but actually all we know is that the mind is knowing here in the mind. That's all we know, right? You may have a partner for 30 years, that all of that, whatever that relationship has been, seeing and touching and talking and thinking about them and remembering them, all of that has happened here, always here in the mind. 
Our whole reality is unfolding in the mind. It's just mind objects being known. Sound is a mind object being known. Sight is a mind object being known. Thought is a mind object being known. Is that making sense? So uh, Eric was talking about observing thoughts. So we're sitting there, we're with the breath, or with the body sitting. It's just sensations being known in the mind. right? And then all of a sudden, attention, the mind that knows, realizes there's thinking, you know, recognizes thinking. It looks at the thoughts, thoughts are being known. Now, all of these phenomena are just coming and going. That's just their nature. I mean, the interesting thing about a thought, it can seem like a thought has some substance, but when we actually look, there's really very little substance to a thought. In the same way, there's very little substance to pain, a painful sensation. Pain feels constant and oppressive when we're not paying close attention. When we pay close attention to pain, to thought, to sound, to any phenomena, physical or mental, it starts to reveal how ephemeral everything is. Because we're not, we're just knowing it as a mind object. It's always a mind object, what we're knowing. Whatever it is that we're knowing. So, you know, I touch the hardness of the table it seems like it should be substantial, right? Because it's a tabletop. But I'm not actually touching the table. I'm not actually knowing this as we imagine. That idea that I'm touching the table, that's a thought, right? So there's hardness. That's a sensation. The hardness is the sensation. And that can be known, right? So there's the hardness is being known. And then there's the thought. I'm Mark touching this table. And by the way, Mark, it's hard. I know that from previous experience. So there's two things going on. There's that unfolding of thought, little flickers of mental energy being known in the mind. Right? It's just a very ephemeral thing. Thought, table, it's hard. I remember when Mary built this little table for common ground. You know, all the different memories and associations with this lectern. They just kind of flit through. And even the tactile experience of touching it, you know, what we call hardness or smoothness or warmth, you know, or depending on what we're getting in that experience, even those things are also very ephemeral. They're just coming and going. Because if things weren't coming and going, how could it ever change? You know, how could it become, go from this to that? So whatever the moment is, it, it's very ephemeral. So it's not a problem. It's like, Instead of thinking of that as a problem, you can see that as an insight. Oh, like so much what we think is we're going to find when we pay close attention is like we're going to get to some substantial truth. Oh, this is how it works. But actually what mindfulness reveals, this whole path of paying more attention, it reveals it's more about what's not there than what is there. See, the... The way that Buddha realized it, came to understand, is that, that the problem is the mind, the heart, has gotten in the habit of grasping. It's like it's living its life, it's knowing, 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 just like I've been describing. And out of habit, just over habit, that then sort of becomes addictive, it feels, it has this compulsion to get tight. So it knows and it gets tight. It sees something it likes, it gets tight. It sees something it doesn't like, it gets tight. It sees something it doesn't care about, it gets tight. Like, I don't care about that. 
Everything makes the mind tight. And then all of a sudden we start taking this reactive tendency to get tight as self. And so that idea that I'm tight, I must be self, I must be here having this life, it just becomes this very um, pervasive pattern in the mind. And it, it's what we call existential separation. It's like we separate a self, the sense of self out from what life really is, which is this very ephemeral unfolding. A process always has to be ephemeral, right? Because it's always changing. It can't be a thing if it's always changing. Because before it becomes a thing, it's already become the next part of the process. Like a river. You know, from a distance in a way, we say, well, yeah, the river's a thing. But the river is actually a process of change. Like what actually, what river are we talking about when we say river? We're talking about, you know, a movement of water from here to there. So it's not really any one thing we can kind of grab a hold of. And the same thing with the unfolding mind. It's a process. So when the Buddha talks about anatta, the not-self, which is sort of people hear about and confuses them about Buddhism, what do you mean not-self? I mean, if anything is apparent in our lived experiences, like I'm here, you know, so what does he mean not-self? Well, what it means is as we uh, uh, reduce the mind's addiction or identification with thought because we can have a thought me apart from the world and if I'm really uh, sort of thinking that way all the time it has a it has a sense of like truth because I'm thinking that way but when we actually pay attention to life like Eric was suggesting and you look at a thought in that balanced way the mind's relaxed it's alert and now it's relaxed and alert with the movement of thought. He realizes, well, these thoughts are just coming and going. I'm not doing it. There isn't anybody doing it. These thoughts are just coming and going, and they don't last very long. So why even get upset with the thoughts I don't like or get attracted and identified with the thoughts I do like? Because before I can claim them as mine, they're already gone. So the more we see how ephemeral everything is, grasping just starts to fall away from the mind. We're still living our life. We're still a parent, a lover, a friend, old or young, like Minnesota winners or don't like Minnesota winners. But the mind isn't grasping any of that mental or physical activity. So that's that's the freedom the Buddha is talking about in life and practice. When we're aware that we're not a thing, we're a process. And as a process, we're not actually distinct from all the other processes that are here. So we talk about interdependence or interdependent co-arising. The only thing that makes us feel apart is thinking and identification with thinking. So it's not enough just to think, but the mind also has to think, those thoughts are me. That's another kind of thought, a very special thought. We call it wrong view. (laughs) In Buddhism, we call it wrong view. The thought, that thought is me. I'm thinking that thought. That creates this sense of tightness, that that tightness I was talking about before. So one of the things we develop this balance of alertness and relaxation for 
is to see how ephemeral thoughts are, how ephemeral sensations are, how ephemeral emotions are, exactly as you said. It's not a mistake to see it that way. And then the question is, when you see thoughts come and go, can you look at whatever the reaction you have, can you see that that's also ephemeral? So if you like it that they come and go, then see that that liking is ephemeral. If you don't like it, if it's disturbing, then see that the disturbance is also ephemeral. That's the continuity. So we just want to keep whatever's arising in the next moment, we want to see it. Buddha said, see it in three ways. See that it's ephemeral, it's impermanent. See that it's impersonal, meaning that it comes and goes, but nobody's making it come and go. It's just coming and going because of all these causes and conditions that are at play in the moment. And that whenever the mind takes it personally, grasps it, there's suffering, there's stress. You can't own any aspect of life or of experience without creating stress in the mind. And when the mind lets things be, fully participating without the grasping, then we call that freedom. There. That's all of that's all the Buddha taught. <laughs> now all we need is like a hundred lifetimes to digest it and to kind of see it for ourselves. And that's really what the practice is about. And it's actually pretty straightforward because this is obviously subtle, what I've just talked about. Normally I don't talk this way in intro classes, but maybe I had too much green tea today. So <laughs> please forgive me if this has seemed a little like, what's he talking about? Don't worry about it because all we have to do is cultivate this balance. Formally, every day in our 30-minute sit, let's say, we're cultivating brightness, alertness, and relaxation. And then for the rest of our waking day, as best we can as we go about our day, keep remembering that it's okay to be relaxed. It's okay to be bright and interested. You know? So we're bringing those qualities up all day long, and we're just doing it formally in our meditation practice so that we get good at it. You know, we're creating the optimal conditions. Find a time in the day when you feel relaxed, when you feel bright. You know, some people it's early in the morning, but other people, there's no brightness early in the morning. They're not really bright until 12 noon. So then those people maybe need to practice later in the day. So initially it's important that you find the time of day, the place that's going to really support your practice. And also the object. Are you going to work with your breath at your nostrils? Are you going to fill your whole body? Or are you going to work with sound? Use what your mind likes. Initially it's good for your anchor. Yeah, and this will have to be the last. Hmm? Yeah, we're going to have to spend more time next week. So I mentioned, but we have three minutes, so I'll just mention a few things about posture. For those of you sitting on the floor, the idea, like I said, is to have a wide base of support. So one of the easiest, not for everybody, but one of the easiest postures, sometimes called the Burmese posture or the easy posture, is just having one ankle in front of the other like this. Now, you want to sit in the front third of your cushion. So you're in, if you're facing my way, you'd be tilting your pelvis this way. If you sit in the back of the cushion, you know, you're leaning the opposite way you want to be leaning. You want to be tilting your pelvis. That helps get the knees closer to the ground. Another relatively easy posture for people is have the ankles more under the knees. Now, you don't get as much uh, sort of spreading of the weight, but you can tuck blankets or excuse me, little pillows under your knees, and that will kind of give you that triangle base. Okay, so like this. And then we have the various lotus poses. This is one with the 
um, top of the foot on the top of the calf, like that. And then you can do the half lotus where it's on your thigh, like this. And then those who are very flexible, I don't sit this way, can do the full lotus. And that, you know, if you have that kind of flexibility, uh, really, that being locked in really helps. Now, you don't want the torquing to be in your knees. What allows you to do the lotus is the mobility in your hips. Your knees, they're kind of in normal alignment here. So be careful that you're not harming your knees in this. Now, another thing that works for people who want to sit on the floor but don't have uh, enough flexibility to do cross-leg position is you can use one of the little benches. I think somebody, is anybody using a bench? I know, yeah, Eric was using a bench. Eric, why don't you hold that up again so people can just see them. We have like five in the closet we can use. Or you can just take a cushion like this and put it this direction. And you can even put one on top of it if you want to sit up a little higher like this. And see, I'm still, I'm tilting my pelvis this way. You can have your knees wide apart or close. But this can work for a lot of people. And it's, uh, you have a little pressure on your knees, but if that doesn't bother you, it can be quite easy on the knees and hips. And then if you're sitting in the chair, if you're a tall person, you want to raise your seat up so your thighs and your shins are at a 90-degree angle or something close to that. And if you're a short person, then you raise the floor up by putting a blanket under your feet. Make sense? And then generally we don't cross our legs when we're sitting, but you have the feet flat on the floor and, like I said, a right angle. And then wean yourself off of the back of the chair over time. You can get those little wedge pillows. Another thing you can do at home is you can put a two by four on the back two legs. And so you're tilting, you're giving a little angle to your chair. And that can help you. You know, initially maybe you use the back of the chair and then maybe you just use a little pillow so your lumbar is supported, but the top half of your back isn't in contact with the chair. And then maybe eventually you won't need to have any part of the back. Your muscles will develop. And then generally with the hands, we're just holding them in a symmetrical fashion. Some people, the traditional posture, having the right hand on top of the left, or just resting on your thighs. You know, other, there are different sort of things, but generally something very simple. Okay? And I mentioned already about, you know, the spine isn't straight. It just has its natural curves. That there's an alignment where the weight is right over the vertebra below it. So you don't need a lot of muscular effort to hold the spine. It's the stacking that sort of supports it. And then the head is also in alignment. So the weight is going straight down through the spine. We don't have to use the muscles in the back and the body to kind of keep the frame upright. And bring your questions about posture next week. So the uh, handout is right outside if you didn't pick it up. If you weren't here last week, please sign in and get your hand up here. And if you have some time, all the folding chairs need to go downstairs, just the folding chairs. Down the stairs to the right and to the right. And I'll see everybody next week.